Welcome back to the Grand Valley Church Podcast, a community of faith in Brandon, Manitoba. We hope this message helps you meet Jesus and grow in faith. Well, good morning. As Max said before, we are launching into a new series today called Restart. And if you haven't met me before, my name is Brian. I'm the lead pastor here, and we're excited that you're here with us. But I want to start today with a question. And maybe this is a question you weren't expecting, but how's your New Year's resolution going? And maybe you're thinking, now don't stick up your hands, but maybe you're thinking, hey, we made it to church this morning, and that is awesome. Thank you for choosing to be here. Thanks for choosing to make it. Now, maybe you're thinking, you know, I'm doing pretty awesome. I've hit the gym every day this week. And if you stuck your hand up right now, probably half of us would grumble at you because we have not. So maybe your resolution, you're saying, it's going great. I'm making a change. It's going awesome. This is working out. Or maybe you're going to be in this category. I've ditched it already. I tossed that thing out by probably 12.30 New Year's Day, like kind of thing. Maybe that's where it was. Or maybe you think this way. You say, well, I didn't make a resolution because I think resolutions are kind of pointless. Like, why do we bother making this? It's a new year. Why do we want a new start? What's all that about? Or maybe you're in this category. I didn't make one because I would have just would have failed it anyways. In fact, that's actually probably the one I would put myself in sometimes, to be honest, because let's, let's think about this. We often make resolutions around food and health and diet and exercise, things like that. And change is hard. In fact, changing our eating habits, changing what we're doing, it's difficult to do. And in fact, I have this theory about resolutions. This isn't tested, but maybe you can be my test study on this to say this. But here's what I think. Resolutions excuse our current behavior because we claim we'll change in the future. We make a resolution sometime in December because we can excuse whatever behavior we don't want to address right now because I'll do it in the future. And think about it this way, like Christmas time, all the Christmas baking, all the Christmas treats, all the Christmas meals. I get to say, well, my choice is do I want to be healthy or do I want to eat those? Well, I'm going to eat those. Like, come on. And what happens is current Brian makes decisions that future Brian will have to pay for, right? So current Brian is kind of a jerk to future Brian some days. And so... Our resolutions sometimes are an excuse because we don't want to change. In fact, change is one of the things that we just naturally do not like, we don't want. But then we're in this season of, hey, it's a new year. Let's start things fresh. Let's start things new. Let's see what's going to be different in 2020. This is the start of a new decade. What's this 20s going to be like? But why is it so hard to create change in our lives? Why is it that the stats say that nearly all New Year's resolutions will fail? Why is it that we struggle when we say there's something I want to do, but I don't do it? Or there's something I want to change, but I'm not able to? Or maybe you hold on really great. You make it to like January 15th, and on the 16th, it just falls apart. And you go, eh, back to my norm. See, at the heart of every change is something called tension. And tension is when we're pulled in two different directions at once. And I think that in change, we are always pulled between these two tensions, and the first of which is for us to remain in the momentum of our usual. We want to remain on the path we've been on. And the second tension that we feel is the pull towards, let's actually do something different. And so anytime we talk about wanting to make a change in our lives, whatever that's related to, whatever that change is, we are stuck between, well, this is how it's always been, And this is the change that I see. And so we're stuck in this tension. We're pulled between them. And so how do we navigate that tension? How do we handle that tension? How we decide which one we're going to let pull us 
is actually how change happens in our lives. And in fact, in order for one of those to affect us, one of two things has to happen in our lives. And that's this, that we only change when we either learn enough that to say this change is necessary or the pain of not changing becomes greater than the pain of changing. When you sit in your doctor's office and they say, well, your numbers aren't going in the right direction. And they paint a picture of, well, this is what your future will be if you don't make a change. Suddenly the pain of not changing is greater than the effort and the pain in change. And so we're like, okay, let's make a change. And so if you hadn't guessed it by now, this series Restart is going to be all about change. How do we navigate change? How do we handle change? And we're going to actually look at three kind of different parts of our lives where sometimes we want to make change. And and it's not going to be the typical ones. You may not guess where we're going with each of these. But we're going to be talking about this concept of change. Why does change matter? And I'm using this term restart because for some of us, this may be a change that you are starting new. This is actually a start, not a restart. This is maybe something you've never considered before. Maybe this is something new. Or maybe this is something that you've done before, or maybe you've tried it before and it didn't work out. And so really it's a restart for some of us and a start for some of us. So no matter where you're at on this, whether this is something new or whether this is something you've tried before, maybe this is something you've succeeded at the past, coming back to a restart is an opportunity to say, let's make something different. Let's see what happens when we make this change. And so for today, our topic for what are we going to restart is this, what happens when we either start or we restart our faith? What happens if maybe we're here because we're exploring faith for the first time? Maybe you were invited, maybe you came to our Christmas Eve service and said, you know, I kind of want to see what this place is like on a Sunday, and thanks for coming and checking this place out. But maybe you're at this point of saying, "What what if I'm just starting into something new? Or what if this is a restart? What if you say, well, this is my home church. You know, my walk with God has been something that's been part of my life for a long time. So what does it actually mean to restart our faith? What does it actually mean to sometimes peel back the layers and uncover and say, what's at the foundation of this? What's at the core? But I want to start with this little definition and this little thing that we sometimes, what we think faith is, but what it really is. Faith in God is not a blind trust. Maybe you've heard of faith talked about in those terms. Maybe you've heard people talk about faith, well, you just have to believe, and they drop it at that. That's actually not what faith is. Faith in God is informed trust. And how, do we, how we know this is because God goes to incredible lengths to reveal himself to us. He ensures that his scriptures were preserved for us. God wants a personal relationship with us. He sent his Holy Spirit to dwell with us and within us. All of those are actions of a God who wants us to know him, to be informed. God gave us intelligence and rational minds. He gave us the ability to think, to discern, to decide. Because he knows that when we engage all those parts of us, we actually will be led towards God. And so I want to toss out this concept that faith is a blind trust thing. Faith is informed trust. So in this lens of tension, what are the things that either pull us towards or away from this informed trust? And I want to start with what are the things that pull us to remain where we are? What are the things that pull us to say, I don't want to make a change when it comes to faith? What are the things that actually make us kind of almost want to go, eh, I don't really want part of that? That's where we're going to start. So the church, here's the first one. The church doesn't have a good history of answering the questions that people have. 
And that might be a reason that has held you back where maybe growing up you had some questions in your mind and when you asked those questions you were told either, well, don't ask those or, or maybe just you got such a simple, trite answer that didn't actually get to the core or the depth of what you were asking. And so you've gone on with these questions just sitting in the back of your mind and being like, well, does following Jesus mean I just have to ignore those questions? Like, what's that about? See, the church doesn't always have a great history of that. And when we're in that place where we're not dealing with the questions, it makes us actually say, well, why would I want to be part of faith? Why would I actually want to lean into this? Or secondly, it's this one. Maybe we, the church, have become so wrapped up in what we're doing that we fail to show how Jesus is practical and relevant. And it's this kind of simple truth that as all organizations grow over time, they become more focused on insiders than outsiders. And that's true of clubs and social events and workplaces. That's true of all human organizations because it's a human tendency. But this happens in the church sometimes where as a church gets older, we just look inwards and we think it's just about, oh, it's what do we do together when we gather and we forget that the reason why the church exists is actually to share who Jesus is with others. It's intentional to have an outwards focus. Or maybe there's just this last reason why you say, I don't want part of faith because churches are just full of hypocrites. And maybe this one is personal. Maybe someone who professed their faith in Jesus hurt you in a way that you were like, how could you be that unloving to me? How could you act that way towards me and say you follow Jesus? Or maybe it's not personal, but maybe it's something broad where you look at, well, this is how Christians represent themselves in the world, and and I don't want to be angry. I don't want to be hateful. I don't want to feel like I have to think a certain way or or be a certain way or do a certain thing. And, And you think, if that's the reputation Christians have, I don't want to be part of it. Now, you might be thinking, what is going on here that the pastor is telling me reasons not to believe in Jesus? Because there's three of them right off the bat here. Churches often don't answer real questions. Churches are often only focused on insiders. Churches are only hypocritical. And the truth is, we know this. We, the church, know that we have these flaws and that these flaws make people want to stay away from Christ. See, the sobering truth is that our actions can actually give people reasons not to believe in Jesus. Now, where this gets fascinating is the church. The church is never meant to be the answer to everything. The church is never actually meant to be the end of it all. In fact, the church, the gathering of people who come together for a purpose of revealing who Jesus is, our purpose as a church is always to point people to Jesus. In fact, the church is always at its best when we point people to Jesus instead of pointing people to ourselves. Here's why. Because when Jesus interacted with people, Jesus answered the real questions on people's minds. He showed them how faith and how God was practical and relevant and wanted to be part of their life in everything they did. Jesus focused on everyone. He didn't just care about the elite. He didn't care about just the insiders. His message was for everyone. And he goes out of his way to interact with people that everyone else would be like, that's not the kind of person that Jesus should interact with. And Jesus continually did that. He continually broke the norm and went and spoke to the people that of the time would have been considered the outsiders. Jesus was focused on everyone. And Jesus was never hypocritical. Jesus never said, I'm this way and acted another. See, that's why when we as the church are at our best is when we point people to Jesus and when we're modeling ourselves 
to be more like Jesus. Because if not, we're just adding on to the reasons why someone would say, well, I don't want to change. I don't want anything to do with faith. Because there's this tension between the things that always pull us to remain where we are, but there's also a tension that pulls us towards something greater. There's always a tension and a pull that we feel towards something that's more than what we are. And in fact, there's this this story in the beginning of the Gospel of John that we're going to spend some time in today that illustrates this perfectly, how Jesus interacted with people, how he answered their questions, how he dug into things. And John, who's writing this story, was one of Jesus' followers, one of the twelve that got to spend three years with Jesus. And later on in his life, John is choosing to sit down and he wants to write out his gospel. And gospel just means the good news. He wants to write this story of Jesus so that it's preserved for future generations. And he includes a lot of details and a lot of stories about Jesus that the other gospels didn't include because they had already been written. And John says, I'm not going to repeat what Matthew, Mark, and Luke have said. I'm going to tell the stories that they left out for time because they just couldn't write that big of a, a gospel. And so John tells this story in John 3. And he starts it this way. He says, There was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. Now John is setting this up when he says a Jewish religious leader, this man Nicodemus, is part of what's called the Sanhedrin, which is the ruling council, kind of like the government of Israel. Now Israel is under Roman occupation at the time, and so they were given authority to kind of rule over a certain realm of the public life. But as long as they still kept the people in peace to Rome and weren't in rebellion, Rome let the Sanhedrin exist. And so this man, Nicodemus, is part of that. But he's also a Pharisee. Now, Pharisees were a group within Judaism that believed in strict obedience of the Torah law. If there was a way that you could make the law any more strict, that's what they would dive into. And they were kind of like, not everyone in the Sanhedrin was a Pharisee, but a group of them were, and this is who Nicodemus is. So he's part of the ruling elite. He's part of this group that is focused on strict observance and devotion to the law. And here's what happens in verse 2. After dark one evening, Nicodemus came to speak with Jesus. Now, after dark is interesting. He doesn't want anyone to know that he's coming to talk to Jesus. He's doing this in the secret. He's coming at night quietly because he doesn't want people to know that he has questions for Jesus. And he says, Rabbi, which is this Jewish word meaning teacher. It's a sign of respect. And so he says, Rabbi, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. This is assumed already. This is understood because what Jesus is doing, the way he's teaching is unlike anything they've ever seen before. He says, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. So he's coming to Jesus and he says, what you're saying, what you're doing, we know this is real. But remember, he's coming at night. He's coming because he has questions. And Jesus, in his true fashion, kind of preempts his question. And he gives Nicodemus the answer to the question that's on his mind that Nicodemus is either too scared or too afraid to ask. And Jesus replies and he says, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus has been teaching about the kingdom of God. He's been talking about this time that's coming and that's here now where God's presence is going to dwell within the world. That God's presence is coming to be in our lives, to be with us, to shape us, to transform us. And everyone, every group had their own ideas on, well, this is what the kingdom of God will look like. And Nicodemus, as a Pharisee, had a specific 
picture of he said, well, that's what the kingdom of God's going to be. And every time Jesus kind of goes, no, it's actually bigger than that. But Jesus says to him, I tell you the truth, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And so we focus in on this, what does this born again mean? And that's, of course, the first question that comes to Nicodemus. He says, what do you mean? How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? Now remember, Nicodemus is focused on this literal interpretation of Scripture. That's all he sees, all he understands. So he says, how do I take this literally? How can someone be literally born again? He's stuck in this this mindset. And so Jesus says, no, 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 no. I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and of the Spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. Jesus is trying to expand Nicodemus's perspective. He's trying to kind of blow it up, make it a little bigger. Now, when he says, without being born of water in the Spirit, he's actually not talking about baptism in this reference to water. What Jesus is talking about is how water is the source of life. Now, remember, they're in the Mediterranean basin. It's an arid climate. They're on the edge of a desert. Everyone understands how important water is, how refreshing a well is when you're traveling and you can stop and draw water and take a drink. Jesus is saying that no one can enter the kingdom of God without the source of life and without the Spirit. And then he reiterates that. He says humans can only produce human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. And this is what he's saying to Nicodemus. This is what's missing in your understanding. He's trying to answer Nicodemus's question about how do I enter this kingdom of God you're talking about. Jesus dives into the deep question with Nicodemus. And they go on and Nicodemus struggles to understand him. And then we come a little later in their conversation. I'm going to jump ahead a few verses to when Jesus tells Nicodemus this. And it's probably one of the most quoted passages of scripture. You probably know this as soon as I start into it. Jesus says, For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his Son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus gives Nicodemus, This is my purpose. How God has sent his one and only Son, that's Jesus, into the world, so that whoever believes in him has this eternal life. This is the kingdom of God. This is moving towards what God has been trying to do from the very beginning of creation. And now God has stepped into the story by sending Jesus, by putting flesh on, stepping into the world to bring eternal life. And then he adds on this, and oftentimes when we quote it, we miss the second part of this, where it says, God sent his Son of the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. Now Nicodemus keeps asking more questions. And in fact, at the end of their conversation, there is no indication that Nicodemus has changed his mind. In fact, he couldn't understand Jesus because Jesus didn't fit inside his pre-existing worldview as a Pharisee. He had his understanding of, well, this is how God must work and God must fit in this box and understanding of how I've been taught. And when he sits down with Jesus, who he recognizes is sent by God, he's like, but but that's outside my box. But that's outside of the frame of what's normal. That's outside of my teachings and my training and my history. See, Nicodemus needed to restart his faith. Nicodemus needed to look back at why does he believe in God? Why does he believe in who God is and what God's done? Because as he peels back those layers and says, what's at the core? What's at the foundation? 
he's going to find it's something other than Jesus. And that's what Jesus was trying to get Nicodemus to do in this conversation, was to peel back the layers, to get to the foundation, to say, why do you believe in God? Because what if we need to restart our faith so we can represent Jesus better? Because one of the things the Pharisees were not good at was representing love. One of the things they were really not good at was representing grace. They were pretty decent on truth, but their truth was taken to the utmost nth degree in a way that it excluded everyone. And so even if there was a piece of love, even if there was a piece of grace, you couldn't see it because the truth was so overburdening. But when it comes to our faith, what pulls us towards change? What pulls us towards wanting to see things the way Jesus saw things, the way that Jesus is trying to teach Nicodemus? Because we know some of the reasons that would pull us to say, well, I don't want my faith to change, or maybe I don't want anything to do with this thing called church, or I don't want anything to do with faith. But there is something deep within us that does feel a longing for what God offers. Because what God offers to us is hope and love and purpose and peace and grace, a relationship eternal life, security, faithfulness, friendship, relationships, all these things that faith offers freely. We sometimes have to say, well, what are the things that are dragging us back that we need to let go of so that we can reach forward into what God is offering? And we're going to dwell a little bit in one of the New Testament letters, and and next week we're going to spend a ton of time talking about Paul. We're going to focus in on Paul's journey in his life. But Paul was a guy who comes in the New Testament. He appears after Jesus. He was alive when Jesus was alive, but they didn't know each other then. And in fact, Paul had a different name when we first meet him in Scripture. His name was Saul. And Saul's job was to go and persecute these people that believed in Jesus and to try and coerce them and convince them and beat them until they would renounce their faith in Jesus because the established religious leaders saw this Jesus movement called the Way as a threat. And so Saul was one of the guys sent to basically force Christians to recant their faith, to give up, to renounce their belief in Jesus. And so Saul, as he's going about this task, has this miraculous encounter with Jesus where Jesus blinds him and then says, hey, you're going to do stuff for me now. And Paul goes, yep, I am, because now I realize that what I'm doing is wrong. And so Saul's life changes in a moment, and to reflect how much his life has changed, he takes on the new name Paul, And he spends the remainder of his life traveling and planting churches, teaching about Jesus and talking about God's grace and how God is, what God is doing through Jesus. And one of the churches that Paul planted was a church called the Church of Corinth. And we have two letters in our scriptures, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, that were letters that Paul wrote to the Church of Corinth. And there was a third letter too that was basically go back and read the first letter. And that one's not in our scripture, but we know Paul talks about writing it. And so in each of these letters, he spends the first portion of it dealing with their problems, saying, you're a church, you need to get your act together, these are the things that you need to fix. And then the latter half of each letter dives into, now I want to teach you more about Jesus. Now that we've dealt with those problems, because the churches will always have problems to deal with, now that we've dealt with those things, let's come back to why this matters. Let's come back to why we gather as a church. Let's come back to what we know about Jesus. And so Paul writes this, 2 Corinthians 5, starting middle of verse 14. He says, Since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we have all died to our old life. Now remember, this this comes again, Christ has died for all. Whether you know him or not, 
Jesus chose to die to give himself up as a sacrifice for you. We also believe that we have all died to our old life. Jesus died so that those who receive this new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they'll choose to live for Christ who has died and raised for them. Paul is setting up that there's a distinction between where we were before we knew Jesus and where we are now that we know Jesus. And then he adds on to this, and it's kind of almost a little sidebar, but he says this. He says, so now we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view. And when he says that, he is digging back to because Paul was a Pharisee. He's saying, I used to only see Jesus through the lens of a Pharisee, through the lens of saying he doesn't fit my truth. But he's saying how differently we know him now. In fact, this is one of the hallmarks, one of the things that happens when we choose to explore faith in Jesus is that God starts to change our perspective and how we see things. God starts showing us how to see people with the eyes that are the way that God sees people. And then Paul says this, and this is the verse I want to camp on for a little bit. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. Now, there's some debate over the grammar in this because the grammar that Paul used in the original Greek is a little vague here. And it says, this means anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. There's one group of scholars that says, that's a one time you've been made new. And then there's another group of scholars that says, no, the way Paul is speaking in the Greek and when we translate to the English, we should, we should say this more is continually becoming that this is, you're transformed to be made new, but then God is continuing this work of renewal and making us fresh and making us new as we walk with him. And I actually lean towards the second group of scholars when I look at the two kind of groups that are debating this that are way smarter than I am and know all the Greek languages and all that, but they dig into this because both of them actually make sense. Because when we choose to put our informed trust in Jesus, we are allowing God to make us new, to take away the pieces of us that we'd rather let go of, to take away our flaws, to take away our sins, to take away everything that's separated us from God and replace it with new life that comes born of water, born of the source of life, born of Christ, and born of the Spirit, born of the Spirit dwelling within us. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. This is what pulls us and draws us toward wanting to explore faith and what pulls us wanting to go deeper into a growing walk with Jesus because what Jesus offers is new life. He offers us opportunities and chances. He offers a relationship where he walks with us and guides us deeper into a relationship with him. God is not unknowing and far away and distant and waiting to hit you with a stick anytime you mess up. That is not who God is. God offers us a new life because he wants to walk with us and be with us in every step of our journey. And it's in the middle of this tension, in the middle of the tension of who we were because we, like, we long to cling to the old life because it's comfortable, because we know it, we've been there. We look at the past with rose-colored glasses because all the decisions of the past were set. We look back at something wonderful that happened in our history and we say, wasn't that great? But when we look at the future, there's question marks, there's unknown. We don't know what the decisions we're making will lead to. 
And so we try to often cling to the old life because we'll cherry pick the highlights and say, but those were familiar, those were comfortable. But what Jesus is saying, this new life I'm pulling you into, and this is what Paul writes about continually, this new life of renewal is deeper, it's refreshing, it's nurturing. And somewhere in the middle of those poles, of those tensions, that is where our faith is lived out. In the tension between who we were and who Jesus is leading us to become. And that's why we as the church often make mistakes. Because we're still caught in this tension. We're still drawn between our old lives, the way we were, and towards what God is calling us into. And it gets messy. And in fact, to be part of a church, you've got to be willing to be part of the mess sometimes. And we spent a whole uh, couple weeks on this back in December when we talked about having grace, showing people favor they don't deserve, and how grace solves just about any problem you could be in when you show grace to one another. But when we do this, when we choose to restart our faith and focus on this new life, to focus on living with grace, to focus on living with truth, with love, with hope, It's tough because it means letting go of what's holding us back and venturing into the unknown of where God is leading us. Sometimes the unknown is alluring. Sometimes we look at the unknown, we say, but what if? What could God do? But sometimes, and maybe this comes down to personality, but sometimes we look at that question mark of the future and we go, oh, that looks scary. I don't want to go into the unknown. I don't want to go into what I don't know. But what God promises is he is always with us. See, Nicodemus' story didn't end in John 3. Nicodemus appears two more times in John's gospel, and I believe this is intentional on John's part, why he brings up Nicodemus two more times. Because later on, Jesus has really offended the ruling leaders because he's upsetting their status quo. He's upsetting their control of the people as they are realizing that the faith that Jesus is presenting is way more freeing, way more hopeful, way more attractive than their system of rules. And so the ruling leaders want to put Jesus on trial. And this is before his actual trial when he gets put on trial later. And Nicodemus steps up and he says, whoa, 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 we cannot condemn him until we've put him on trial because they want to go straight to having Jesus assassinated, having Jesus executed. And he says, no, 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 we can't do that until we put him on trial. Nicodemus steps up and points to their law to defend Jesus. Okay, so he he sticks his neck out for Jesus. But then something else happens. When Jesus goes to his trial, and Jesus is in control of his trial the whole way. In fact, he's the only one who knows what's going on the whole time. When the religious leaders convince Pilate to have Jesus arrested, to have him treated as a criminal, to have him executed on a cross. They think it's going to end Jesus' movement. They think this is how we can get everything to go back to what was familiar, back to the way it was. Jesus' disciples scattered because they were scared for their lives. And two men went and took Jesus' body down off the cross that day that he died. One of those men was Nicodemus. The other was a man named Joseph of Arimathea. And John includes this in brackets. He says, the secret disciple. But Nicodemus was a secret disciple too. Something changed in Nicodemus' faith between that conversation about three years earlier and the night that Jesus died. Something changed in Nicodemus' faith that he, one of the rulers of their people, goes and takes Jesus' body down off the cross and prepared it for burial. 
Now, did Nicodemus know that Jesus was going to rise from the grave? I kind of don't think he did. I kind of don't think he expected it. But he respected Jesus. And I think he wanted to believe. Now, one of the things that I really wish is I wish John had added more. I wish we could know what happened to Nicodemus after that, but we don't. That part has been lost to history. But I believe that the process we see in Nicodemus from when he comes to Jesus with questions to when he sticks his neck out for Jesus to when he treats Jesus' body with respect and care as an act of love for this person who was unjustly crucified shows that the Spirit was working in Nicodemus' life. And that's what God invites us to as well. When the Holy Spirit is shaping our lives, we can represent Jesus to others better. And maybe this is one of the things where the church has failed at times, where we have done better at pointing to ourselves or we've done better at keeping people at arm's length than it is to letting ourselves be transformed and shaped by the Holy Spirit so that we can represent Jesus well to others. Sometimes we have to come back to restarting our faith In about 2011, my wife and I, we'd only been married for about a year, year and a half, and we went on a camping trip together. And a friend of mine had recommended this book, and I had had the fortune to meet this author, actually, when he came and spoke at a conference I was attending about a year earlier, or about two years earlier. And so when he released this book, I was was really intrigued, and I wanted to to read it, and so I pre-ordered it so that I got it the moment the book came out. And my wife and I were on this camping trip, and I remember it very vividly. We'd strung up a hammock between two trees. We were the only people in this whole bay. It was just quiet and still in nature, and like deer would like walk right up. Like at one point as I was reading my book, I looked over, and like I could have almost touched the deer that was right there. I had no idea it was there. It was kind of cool. It's side the point. But I was reading this book, and this book was called With. And the whole premise of this book was that we have postures in how we relate ourselves to God. And he has these four postures that he talks about at the beginning, that we sometimes try to live our lives over God. We actually try to control God. We try to find ways to say, to like bargain with God and be like, well, if, if I do this, then you do that. Or sometimes we live our life under God. We're so scared of God that we're like, oh, am I doing the right thing? Am I not? Am I, is God just out to get me if I mess up? Sometimes we live our lives from God, which means we actually just want to get things from God. We think that our faith is just about, God, you should make my life easy. God, you should make raises happen. You should make fortunate things and blessings happen. And and the problem is is that God actually sometimes wants those things for us, but when we blow it out of proportion and we say that is all God is to us, we've kind of tipped the scales in our favor. But there was a fourth one, and this was the one that hit me, just hit me like a brick. When it was life for God, that sometimes we get so consumed in what we think we are supposed to do for God that we have lost out on a relationship with God. And the fifth posture that he comes to and he says, this is where we need to live, is to actually live in a relationship with God. That actually God's love for us doesn't change no matter what you've done for him or what you haven't. And so I was at a point in my life where I was burning myself out trying to live for God and do all the things. I was a youth pastor then, doing all the things that I felt that was part of my responsibility and my duty and my calling, and this is what I was supposed to do. But I had missed out on what did it mean to live with God. See, oftentimes in the church, we would rather 
fall back on the tension and the pull to what keeps us stagnant and keeps us still because we're scared of the unknown of what a relationship with Jesus brings. And so this is kind of my prayer for our church this year as we go into 2020, is that this would be a year where we actually learn to know what does it mean to live life with God? What does it mean to actually see our faith as a relationship where the Holy Spirit is working in us and through us and shaping us and transforming us, bringing us to what is new, bringing us to the new life, bringing us to living water, bringing us to where hope is, bringing us to where peace is, bringing us to where grace is? What would it be if we let the Holy Spirit do those things in us? How would the way we represent Jesus change if we did? How would the way we share with people, this is who God is, this is his love for you, how would that change? Let me pray for us. God, you are a relational God, and we thank you for that deeply. You didn't want to just know us at a distance. In fact, you put on flesh, you entered into the world, and we celebrated that together just a few weeks ago at Christmas. And Lord, as we look at 2020, we look at a new year, we look at new beginnings, and we look at all this, Lord, would you help us see our walk with you as something we do with you? Would you help us see this pull towards your grace and your hope and your peace? Would you help us see who you want us to be? And Lord, would we as a church, would we as people gathered before you, would we do such a better job of pointing people at you than pointing people at ourselves? Would we be a people that are known for revealing and pointing who you are to anyone who's searching, to anyone who's hungry, who anyone who's looking? Lord, would we be that light on the hill in Brandon? God, I pray that our churches of Brandon would be able to represent you to our city and to our surrounding area. God, I pray that what you're doing is not just here at Grand Valley, but throughout all the churches of Brandon, that we collectively together will do a better job of pointing people to you than pointing people to us. So Lord, work in us. Show your spirit to us. And may we walk with you daily. In your name we pray. Amen. Folks, next week we're going to continue our series, Restart. And we're going to be looking at Paul. And we're going to be talking about this idea of what does it mean to restart where you find purpose and meaning in life. Hope to see you next Sunday. We hope this message helped you to take the next step in your faith journey. If you're in the area, we'd love to have you join us Sundays at 11 a.m. You can find out more about us by going to mygrandvalley.ca.